Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Ross Dobson, and my latest book is out, Australia, the Cookbook. In order to understand Australian cuisine, I think we need to understand and know about Australian First Peoples, who have been there for at least 50,000 years, the longest continuous civilization. During this time, Aboriginal Australians were creating and inventing dishes that boggle the mind. I'm curious to hear about a few of those dishes, and might I add, you noted that many Australians are unaware of these dishes. This fascinated me when I started to research the book and look into it more. I think many Australians are not really aware of the contribution that the First Peoples made prior to colonisation, and um, they're finding more and more evidence to indicate that the First Peoples weren't just hunters and gatherers. They farmed fish, they grew seeds to make a flatbread of sorts, um, and they certainly were eating a lot of the abundant seafood that we have here, unique species like our own lobster, Morton Bay bugs and the barramundi fish. And there was a great recipe, which isn't in the book. A friend of mine who's an Aboriginal elder was talking about his tribe made what was like kind of a blood pudding of sorts using all parts of the kangaroo, very similar to the blood puddings we see in parts of um, Europe. And his tribe, that was their special dish. Now, so many things like this fascinated me. And we simply didn't learn about them. But working on the book really opened my eyes. And then we were lucky enough to have Jodie Orchard, who wrote a short essay in the book, um, extolling the virtues of uh, Indigenous ingredients. So it's been a wonderful learning process. Yeah, I definitely want to hear about Jodie Orchard. But first, can you describe the three main periods of Australian food? Writing the recipes for the book, in a way, was the easy part. I felt like the introduction was a real challenge to try and encapsulate what Australian food was about. And I was playing around with clumsy metaphors and wasn't really sure. And I had one of those light bulb moments where I sat up in bed one night and thought, well, let's history dictate what Australian food is all about. And it's a timeline. The first people uh, have been here for tens of thousands of years. So I, I divided the food of Australia into three epochs or periods. And the first period is the tens of thousands of years. The first people have been here. The colonists from Britain came over, uh, were mostly either English military class or Irish convicts. They brought with them their food from 1788 onwards. And I must say, a lot of that food for 150 years or so was quite repetitive and bland. That's not to say there aren't diamonds in the rough. There are some amazing, delicious recipes in there. But then... The third period of Australian food comes in the 1950s when Australia opens its doors to immigrants, particularly from Southern Europe, Greece and Italy, and they bring in coffee, coffee machines, parmesan, basil, a whole range of ingredients. Um, The most important one was probably garlic because the Australians, like the English, loathed garlic and they rarely cooked with it. And then moving forward a bit more into the 70s, we have a huge influx of mostly political uh, asylum seekers coming to Australia in the early 70s, um, mostly Vietnamese, bringing their incredible fresh take on food. But I must note, during all this time, the Chinese had been here from the gold rush in the 1800s, and they were setting up camps, selling food in the gold rush camps, 
and then cooking. In the early 1900s, it's estimated that one third of all cooks in Australia were Chinese because this was the only job they could do legally. So we have this amazing, uh, rich culture of food that although there are three periods we now see a lot more of this overlapping, appreciating first people's food. And of course, we love the flavors of uh, the Mediterranean, Italy, Greece, and also Asian food. Australians are crazy for Asian ingredients. In addition to the first peoples, the immigrants to Australia were so instrumental in setting up the food that you have today. Can you describe mm. the hybrid Chinese-Australian cuisine that popped up in the mid-19th century? Oh, again, fascinating stuff because the Chinese had been here working very hard, kind of in the background on mining camps and in the gold rush period. And then interesting period, one that we're not particularly proud of in 1901, the Australian government implemented the white Australia policy, where it meant only white people could come and live here. And then all the Chinese people that had been living here were completely um, ignored and weren't allowed to own property or have jobs. So one of the only jobs they could do was cook. And they set up restaurants in you could almost say literally every Australian town in Australia, from the cities to the outback towns. And here, they put aside their own personal tastes, like a lot of the Italians and Greeks in the beginning when they were starting businesses here. They put aside their own personal taste, that is, what they cooked at home, and they cooked what they, what made money and what sold to the locals. So we have a lot of lamb dishes, which is very unusual and unique because most of the food, Chinese food cooked in Australia was Cantonese and lamb wasn't really big on the menus in, in that region of um, China. So we have a, a dish called Mongolian lamb. Now, I know there's a Mongolian beef in other countries, but Mongolian lamb has very little to do with Mongolia and a lot more to do with what Australians like to eat. And um, we have prawn toast beautiful prawn cutlets, salt and pepper squid. So the Aussie Chinese ingredient recipes start to use Chinese methods and techniques with the local produce. And then in the 50s and 60s, we have a lot of these stable of Chinese Aussie ingredients like a take on a pork spare rib. And we use a different cut of spare rib in Australia, which is very different to America and other places. And um, then moving into the 80s when Australians become a little bit more adventurous with their food. We have a salt and pepper squid that is almost on every pub menu in Australia now with fish and chips and hamburger. Moving further into the 80s, we have um, even more exciting food like pippies in exo sauce. And there's a recipe for that in the book as well. And um, I felt like I couldn't write a cookbook without indulging that more because there are recipes like a ham and chicken roll. Like I've never seen that anywhere else. It's absolutely delicious. It's chicken breast fillet with a slice of ham you roll it up then you roll that in spring roll wrapper and flash fry it and slice it it's really delicious so we have this fascinating unique take on chinese food in australia it's really good what are pippies okay pippies clams um oh <laughs> yes uh surf clams tiny little surf clams that are still mostly caught by a traditional method called raking. They're mostly in South Australia on the wild coastline there. I don't know if you're familiar with the technique where you'd walk in the sand, you'd, there's little bubbles, and they literally would get a rake and then rake where the bubbles come up 
and use their feet. And um, they're not particularly cheap, but the clam in the EXO sauce is so delicious. And EXO is a Chinese sauce, and it's called EXO because it comes after the brandy EXO brandy, which meant means you know something like extra special. And it came from Hong Kong in the heady days of the 80s, where everything was looked at with opulence, and it, it had lots of seafood in it. And you just need a teaspoon of this in your stir fry. You wrote in the book that the Industrial Revolution was one factor in preventing Australia from developing its own regional cuisines. I found that so interesting. So did I, because when I started researching on the book, and even prior to that, we'd have these discussions, why doesn't Australia have its own regional food? Of course, first people had regional cuisines based on the produce available to them. But certainly for 150 years and even up until now, most people really started to uh, come from overseas that weren't convicts. The convicts stopped in about 1850. So we had free settlers coming here from about 1850 onwards. And they were educated. They were literate. They could read and write. And Australian publishing also really took off at this time because Australia is such a big country, people isolated. They were getting the newspapers and these were national state newspapers that shared the same news and lo and behold they shared the same recipes which I found fascinating when I started researching. So a recipe for a cake published in the early 1900s, if it was good enough it might have been published in a newspaper in say Hobart and because the print was syndicated, if it was a good recipe it would be today's equivalent of going viral. So the recipe would go all the way over to Perth or Darwin or Brisbane, and these recipes would be shared. So I think there are two factors in um, the thing about the Industrial Revolution. It was communication, and I think we have to think also where we have these uh, countries that have a strong history in regional cuisine, I'm thinking Europe, you might have a village in Italy where someone might put ricotta in their pasta and down the road it would be heresy to do so because these villages were very isolated often and they often had their own dialects as well. But in Australia, because we were really populated after the Industrial Revolution, there was this national communication, if you will, and also production, food production comes into play as well as uh, refrigerated food. Canning of food is very important. So ingredients could be shared across the country. So it didn't just limit it to one region. And I hope that explains it a bit further for you, Susie. How did you determine if a recipe was worthy of inclusion in this cookbook? Well, you know, I was fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to work on the project. And the first thing I thought was, I just have to put my ego aside. I mean, I've had several food businesses where I've certainly cooked a whole bunch of different I think things that are really interesting and tasty, but they didn't belong in the book because they didn't have a place in our history or our culture or our social structure. So I think that they were really important aspects that a recipe had to belong to all of us. It wasn't just something that a friend told me that they cooked or I thought that was tasty. And I think this was really important to see it as a collective project. And one of the ways of doing this was um, doing a lot of research, a fascinating Australian government initiative. It's called Trove. It's a national library where they are systematically scanning and putting up documents of literally every printed newspaper that in Australia. So I could Google, for example, banana bread. 
and or banana cake. And I might find this recipe first published in 1928, for example. And then as I looked further, I thought, well, this really is part of us. This is what we eat. And so really it was about the research and its worthiness was based on do we have a connection with it? And I really wanted people when they look at the book, and I felt like I've got this reaction so far, people go, oh, my God, I forgot that existed. I'm so glad it's in the book. So that makes me very happy. Like their grandmother used to make it and they forgot about it. What did they mean yeah. when they said they forgot yeah. it existed? Yeah, well, it's like, um, you know, when I first started looking at the book and, you know, I was researching and talking to a whole bunch of people, the obvious Australian recipes were pavlova, lemington, meat pie. But then as I delved a bit further, people might ring me a few days later, friends, and go, my Auntie Joan made a cake. It was called Ginger Fluff. And I said, I've never heard of it. So I then go to the research and look at the history. And lo and behold, there is a whole bunch of recipes for something called Ginger Fluff. Another really good example is a cake called Peach Blossom Cake. This was really popular from about 1900 to 1950 or 60. And it wasn't until... um, maybe eight years ago, and I'm sure, um, you, you know, you're familiar with the cooking competitions and Celebrity Chef, etc. that now are on television. It wasn't until they had a guest chef from an amazing institution called the CWA, which is a country women's association, and they've been making scones and cakes for 100 years or so. And a woman went on to the show and made a peach blossom cake, and it went viral. People were like, where's this been? And they loved it. It's a very easy cake. It's beautiful to look at. There are other recipes like cream buns and finger buns and matchsticks. And a finger bun is like a really soft yeasted bun. It's oval shaped, not very big. And it's got some currants and some sultanas in there. And it generally has a really soft pink icing with a sprinkling of desiccated coconut. And when I put that in the book and people were saying, oh my God, we ate that in the 70s and 80s. But then it's had this huge resurgence. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term hipsters. We do have them here too, Susie, which fascinates me. They've got bakeries popping up all over in the city. <laughs> yep. And the hipsters have now <laughs> discovered the finger bun and they're making it their own. And I actually just the other week was in one of the local newspapers talking about my classic recipe and they had a few um, young dudes cooking finger buns and um, reinventing them, which is fabulous. So we're, we're really holding on to our food history and it's it's incredible that people have just taken so warmly to these recipes that have reignited an interest in baking as well. It's really lovely. Speaking of history, the essay on Indigenous food written by Jody Orcher at the beginning of the book sheds light on the fascinating and ancient culinary techniques that went largely ignored for years and years. Can you talk Mm. a little bit about Jody and her tips for demonstrating respect for the cultural integrity of Australian Aboriginal people? When we first started working on the book, we thought it was imperative to engage an Aboriginal Australian to write and contribute to the book. Jody Orchard is fascinating and genuine and generous and she sheds light and her knowledge on, on the ingredients is so worthy. Uh, and I must say my scope of knowledge of the First People's food, I would say like many of my generation, was really went unignored or, you know, it, I think it went to go a bit deeper into the whole psyche 
of when Australia was colonised, the British assumed that, you know, it had never been colonised before and it was theirs. So I was very much part of that generation and my grandparents, my parents and grandparents, we, we, we weren't enlightened and I think it's time to open our eyes and certainly Jody helps us do that with a beautiful essay and a glossary of some of the fascinating ingredients uh, that showcase the, the wonderful cuisine of indig- Indigenous people. Bush foods were often considered to be inferior by colonists. Is that yes. changing? Are they making a comeback in restaurants? Are the hipsters onto it? <laughs> <laughs> people, um, I would say on the most part, are getting much more adventurous about Aboriginal Indigenous ingredients. And many of these now can be bought online because a lot of a lot of the ingredients like the lemon myrtle and, and the, the peppers can be bought because they dry very well. And a few people from overseas have asked me if they can get the ingredients. And I certainly know there's a lot of websites where you can get them and have them shipped to you. But the other thing too um, with the book was... You know, I think when we think of Australian Aboriginal food um, in terms of protein, we automatically go straight to the kangaroo, which is a a meat very high in protein, and you can buy that in the supermarket. But the other meats are still very much a niche. It's very difficult to get them. But in looking at this, I realised that we often overlook the native seafood that we eat. Um, Mussels, I mentioned Balmain bugs before or Moreton Bay bugs. And pippies? And pippies, of course, clams and pippies. And we have our lobsters here, which aren't really lobsters. They're like a, they're called a spiny lobster. They don't have the claw on the front. they just got a, a spine, spiny thing. And we have yabbies. I think yabbies are really delicious. They're a freshwater crayfish. All these ingredients are available at the fish market and even the supermarket. And um, there's a bit of a stereotype that Aussies eat emu and koala and kangaroo and, you know, that simply isn't the case. And I hope this book does something to throw off the shackles of those stereotypes. I hope so, too, because I was on an interview on the BBC last week, and he said, what's your next cookbook coming up? And I said, I'm interviewing Ross Dobson, who has Australia the Cookbook. And he's like, yep. are you going to talk about kangaroo? And I said, oh, my God, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. Well, it may, you can talk about it because it makes sense. Like, there's a recipe in the book for a Thai kangaroo, Thai kangaroo salad. salad. And it makes yep. sense because, you know, the whole thing about you usually use a lean cut of beef in the salad, and kangaroo makes perfect sense. So I think it's fun to talk about these things, but as you've looked at the book, Susie, and other people, I really hope they've gone, oh, my God, there's such a wide range of interesting ingredients from all over the place that have come together to make our food truly unique. I'm curious to hear about the section at the end of the cookbook Mm. on guest chefs. At the end of the book, we have these wonderful um, additions from some incredibly talented, enthusiastic chefs that have contributed recipes that you would say people at the other end of the cooking spectrum with a, a high degree of knowledge and skill would attempt at home. But it, what it, what they're there to do is to showcase, I think, the talent of chefs in Australia and also their talent in using 
local and indigenous ingredients and really showcasing Australian food on the world stage. You know, Mark Olive has got this great recipe for, it's simple, it's a real fusion. Um, Mark is indigenous Australian and he's using chicken thigh with Spanish sherry and a native pepper. So that's a really good example of kind of, if you will, high-end Aussie cuisine. The other day I made damper, which is apparently super trendy these days. It's on page 242. Can you describe this? Damper was really probably came from the influence of the Irish convicts where soda bread had always been, you know, I loved simple throw together bread. And then in Australia, we have a lot of itinerant workers, um, jackaroos going from farm to farm, finding work, and they'd have a backpack or you know, a, a swag bag, and it carries few things as they could, and they'd have to make food. And they would have Billy tea, which was a can over a fire. They'd sweeten it with golden syrup, which is also called Cocky's Joy. Of course, the swagmen were also known as Cockies. So it was their sweetener. And this was also used on damper, which was pretty much just two or three ingredients, self-raising flour, baking powder, and some water or maybe some milk. So it was very, very simple. And it too would be cooked in a Dutch oven and just put on the fire with a lid on it. It's lovely fresh. It's a fre- it's a bread that's meant to be eaten fresh. You know, it's not a yeasted bread, so it doesn't toast that well the next day, but it's delicious fresh. And I make it in the cafe and serve it with soups. It's really yummy. So I read in the book that Aboriginal Australians make a similar style from seeds. Have you ever tried that? No, I haven't. And this all came about about three years ago. Bruce Pascoe wrote a book called Dark Emus, really um, starting to explore the notion that, and the evidence is there to support it, that Aboriginals were making a flatbread. I haven't tried it. I would love to. So um, maybe that could be my project. Yeah. <laughs> try and try and try and find a shop that supplies the seeds or the flour and make a flatbread with it. And I'll let you know how it goes if I do, but I'm very keen to do that. Tomorrow I'm making a classic lamington, which I had never heard of. Um, It's Mm -hmm. on page 310. Can you describe Mm -hmm. this and talk a little bit about how it got its name? There is a story that there was a Lord Lamington from England, like a lot of early colonists, and he was in Brisbane. And the story goes he had some chefs that had made a cake. They dropped the cake by accident into a box of chocolate icing and they didn't want to waste it so they then took the bits of cake out and rolled them in coconut not sure if this is true but it's such a unique cake it could probably only be invented by accident so there's so many different recipes for a lemington i found that and it's a good tip for you susie if you make the sponge the day before just you can just cover it and let it sit overnight. It's much better to have a lemington that is not fresh and you dip it into chocolate icing and then roll it in coconut. Uh, they're so good. And I've been making them here at my cafe, mini versions, so they're only about an inch square. And I'll tell you what, they're delicious as well. But they're a bit fiddly to make. So if you're starting it for the first time, I'd probably do the bigger ones. <laughs> so Australians have a way with words like brekkie, breakfast, you celebrate (laughs) Chrissy, you shorten more words than any other English speakers. What are your go-to words? Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I liked occasionally like to have a beer and we drink it out of a glass here called a schooner. So I call that a (laughs) skooey. 
it sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? But they um, know what you're talking about? People would. The if bartender? It said, oh, can I have um, two skewies of new? New, new <laughs> is the brand of beer. They would know exactly. It sounds like another language. <laughs> it does. <laughs> But we're, we're funny, even, um, you know, the unique Australian coffee, flat white, um, people call it a, a flatty. Now, it's a very odd language. Australians are known for shortening more words, but then if it's too short, they'll make, make it longer. It doesn't make any sense. Please don't ask me to explain <laughs> it. We're going to move on to my segment called Last Night's Dinner, where I ask you what you had last night for dinner. I rediscovered the American version of this book. America. And I've been making some great chilies, like as in you call them chili, like, um, you know, chili con carne and things like that. But last night I made beef stroganoff and that's what I had for dinner. <laughs> it's well, not Australian. I'm sorry to disappoint no, you. No, I love that though, but it's cold where you are, right? Yes, it is. Perfect. And I would never eat that stuff. And it's just too hot here. And, it, and it's getting down to like three or four degrees at night, which isn't cold by your standards. But I've been making in the American cookbook, there's, there's two versions of stroganoff. There's the American stroganoff, which uses ground beef. Personally, I thought this sounded a bit odd, the flavors and textures. But I, I then went for the the other one in the cookbook, which uses a chuck steak or blade steak. And you slow cook that and serve it with buttered noodles. Oh, my God, it's very good. And let's face it. Anything with sour cream, I'm in. <laughs> You'll have to, like, make that a fad in Australia and you can call it strogi. It's my recipe <laughs> for strogi. <laughs> they might even call it strogi. <laughs> They'd confuse it even more. It'd be called strogi. Isn't that terrible? It just turns into something very unappetizing. <laughs> Where funny. can we find you on the web and social media? Instagram, Ross Dobson Food. And I also have um, a great little cafe here. It's Cafe Royce, R-O-Y-C-E. And you'll see so many lovely food pics and mood pics of the cafe. And if you go to my Ross Dobson Food Insta, when I was working on the book three years ago and testing, I took so many food pictures. I'm very pleased that I did because it was a good memory thing and the food does look really good. So I'm very pleased with that. So do check it out. It is Aboriginal lore to only take what you need and leave some for others. Words we should all be living by. Thank you, Ross, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Follow Cookery by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.